The following presentation may contain occasional incidental coarse language. Intel approved. This is Dan, Asha, me, and a very special guest, Justin, from the Freeborn Shop. We have someone who's more internet famous. Yeah, and smart, and organized, and who actually knows the system really well. You see guys, we're doing a very special episode of Noise Sector today, and episode zero if you will. Now I've had a lot of people who have been listening to the podcast talk to us and go, man, you guys are really enthusiastic and you're making me excited about this game, but what is this game? What is an Antares? How do I gate? So what we thought we'd do is we'd have a sit down and we'd talk about some of the basic mechanics of the game and some of the things that we think make it unique and exciting. So we're just going to go around the table essentially and talk about some of the interesting rules and how the game fits together and then we're going to just have a bit of a discussion on how everything works. The intention of this episode is really to mitigate our last episodes. If you're coming straight into the noise sector, that's fantastic. You've picked an excellent place to start. Thank you for listening to the episode, and we're really just trying to make it super clear so you guys actually know how the game functions. So when we say something like an order check, or an axe stat, or you're going to get pinned, you actually know what we're talking about. So we're trying to keep you in the loop. So we're just going to start talking about what we thought were some of the most important and most decisive rules that really stood out to us when we first got our hands on the It's a unique board. system. It, it is a unique system. I mean, it does grow a lot from its um, bolt action pedigree, but it definitely does its own thing. Now, I mean, one of the things that it really defines the system is the, section, is the order system. So, the game starts with you put a die in a bag for every unit that you have in your army, and your opponent does the same, and then you take well, you just draw dice out of the bag one at a time, and if it's one of your dice, one of your units gets to activate. If your opponent, if it's your opponent's colour, they get to activate a thing. So people who've played Bolt Action will be very familiar with this mechanic. It's the same thing you'll see in Bolt Action and also in Conflict 47. Both games by Warlord are very, very similar in this section. You have a dice for each unit, you pull the dice out of the bag, so it's no I go, you go, I go, you go. The dice have come out and that's who plays and that's who goes on the table. And then, when you pull your die out, you pick from one of the orders on the die to issue to your unit. So you have advance, which is a pretty standard move and shoot. You can fire, which is you shoot, but with some benefits. You can rally to try and get back in the fight. You can take a run order, which can then also be upgraded to a sprint, but that might exhaust you. Um, <clears throat> you can go down to protect yourself from um, incoming enemy fire, or you can even go on ambush and wait for the enemy to make a move and try and shoot them as they come around a corner or something. So the core of Antares is you get a die and then you issue an order to your unit and then you go about resolving your actions. And I think one of the things that makes Antares particularly interesting as a game are all the other mechanics in the game that interact with orders. So there are special rules that allow you to chain orders together, whether that's a synchronizer drone or a follow order under certain conditions. And a lot of the really exciting tactical de depth of the game relates to you know choosing which unit needs to make an order now. And that might be because if you don't rally, you're going to get blown up from the auto pins, or it might be that you want to put a pin on a unit that's already done something to, to limit its opportunities next turn. 
it really is a game of opportunity and not getting out and moving. Especially with things like ambush and setting up your fire screens and who you're going to shoot at. It's a really big game of making sure you give the right order to the right unit at the right time where you might be on the back foot for the rest of the game. Exactly. I mean, early on, we had a tendency to just go for advance orders and fire orders, but now we're really getting into kind of the meat of the game. We're getting a lot more use out of running and ambushing and things like that. Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely an interesting game in that respect. I definitely feel like getting things wrong, you can get punished extremely hard because you don't necessarily know when the next dice is going to come out for you. So you need to really think about, well, what happens if my opponent gets two turns around? Dan and I were playing a game before, yeah, and yeah. I, in the first turn I'm like, please stop drawing my dice. I really wanted his command score to have to go before one of my units, and I knew it would come down to the last order of the, of the turn. And at the end of the game, it flipped over, and Justin had more dice than me, he was knocking my units out. When you lose a unit, you lose a dice in the bag. So at the end of the game, I had three dice in the bag, three units on the table. He had seven or eight in the table, and he was just out-activating me. I was on the back foot. I was getting the ever-living tar beaten out of me. And I think that's the greatest thing about the dice system, the way that it can swing from you getting a turn, your opponent gets a turn to move a unit, or you move your entire army, your opponent moves their entire army, or somewhere in between. That sort of variance just lends each turn its own desperate struggle. It really forces you to kind of react to the battlefield situation as it evolves. You can't count on getting your next activation. Sometimes you're going, oh god, why have you got four activations in a row? Give me something, give me something. But then sometimes you get the four activations in a row and it, it balances out. It's about kind of riding the probability curve. So another thing that might start coming against you in this game, and this is my favorite part of this, is the pinning mechanic. Pinning, again, is something that's been borrowed from bolt action. It's present in Conflict 47, and it's a big part of how Beyond the Gates of Antares works as a game system. Mm -hmm. Pins are negative marks against your units you rack up for getting shot at, for failing a particular test, for tripping over when you run, or even something as simple as, you know, you fail a check, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, one of the, the pins is definitely a really cool mechanic, especially when you first pick up the game, the game feels like it's just about the pins. And I guess this ties into the, one of the other things that makes Antares really unique, and that is the, the D10 system. The, the way the pins work, because they apply penalties to units, the D10s give you a, a greater range of variability on each stat, and really allow the pin system to function in this game. Yeah, so unlike a lot of other war games, um, Antares is a D10 based system. So rather than rolling a D6, you're rolling a D10. And so this gives you a much like wider range of variants, the pins can really affect that, and it means units can have like a much wider range of stats. One other difference to a lot of other um, systems is that you are trying to roll equal to or less than your stat. So if one of your guys has an accuracy of 5, that means you need to roll a 5 or less on a D10 in order to hit. I mean, initially it's a little counterintuitive because we usually, you know, as wargamers we're trained to want big numbers, big numbers good, ones are bad. But in our terrors, ones are really good. And the sort of flip of that is, with the D10s, it can lull you into a really false sense of security. Say, you know, I've got to make a res test, which is my armor, if you're playing a different system. If I have a res of 7, I have to roll 7 or below for my guys to not, you know, bite the bullet, bite the laser, bite the magnetic projectile and fall down dead. And you're like, oh yeah, 7 out of 10, that'll be fine. And you might have like three turns where your armor is good as gold. And then you might have a turn where four of your nuggets hit the dirt horribly and all of a sudden you're pinned and you've got nowhere to go. 
Yeah, this is this is a funny one, and I don't think anything highlights it better than the way command checks work with respect to pins. So, you know, most units in most armies will be rolling on a natural eight if they have, you know, if they had to take a test. So they take a pin, now they need a seven. That feels like a very good chance, you know, seventy percent chance. Except of course what happens is you fail it all the time. So <laughs> and then you don't do anything, you go down, uh, it forces your order to go down, you waste your turn and potentially get punished very hard for that. Yeah, so just to elaborate on what Justin was saying, is that normally when you get an order dice and you have you issue an order to a unit, they just get to do that. So if I have a unit, I issue them an advance order, they move along and fire their guns. But if they have any pins on them, then all of a sudden they have to test their leadership. It's like, you know, they're pinned down by enemy fire, they're having a bad day. All of a sudden, now they have to make a command test of rolling equal to or less than their command, modified by pins. Mm -hmm. So most things, as Justin said, start out with like eights, but once you start getting a few pins on, you could be testing on fives or fours even, and your guys are a lot less likely to actually do what you want. I, I will say, if you're new and you're listening to this, this mechanic, uh, I guess it's a little bit hidden as to how punishing it can be. And a lot of people overlook the rally order, which is that order Asher mentioned before, where you can uh, rally and prepare yourself back for the fight. The unit basically, in most cases, will roll a dice and remove a number of pins, which means their future actions will be more likely to succeed. Really important. The rally order is also the only order in the bag that's not mitigated by the amount of pins you have. Well, down in the down order. You can either feel better or hide in the dirt. Whereas, just like Asher was saying, those pins, each one of them counting against your statistics. If you have a fire or you want to shoot something, if you have an accuracy, so you're shooting stat five, you don't have any pins, eh, fives down to ones, that's 50-50. If you start racking up pins, and all of a sudden you're needing threes and twos and ones to hit stuff, all of a sudden you're all hitting troops up looking so Yancy. <laughs> I will say one other little thing for new players to keep aware of too is there are some exceptions. Not every stat is affected by pins. So one in particular is a strength stat when you're in hand-to-hand -hand combat. You know, your point blank shooting, which uh, we'll talk about assaults I'm sure in a minute, but your point blank shooting uh, is affected by the pins, but when you're actually you know, up close and personal punching each other in the face, the pins don't matter anymore. So that's there's a few little exceptions like that that are worth keeping track of. Speaking of the assault phase, one of my favourite phases in the game actually just because to me it is one of the most decisive uh, phases in the game mm. because unlike a lot of other systems the if a unit is not destroyed or flees at the end of a combat the winner can then decide to keep going and keep going and keep going until someone's no longer there or no longer able to function which feels a lot more intuitive than sort of a fight standing there for five minutes while the battle rages around them yeah, it's crazy how strong that phase is in lots of other war games. I mean, for instance, I played a lot of Saga. That game is really a game of, we run into each other, we push away. We run into each other, we push away. You might do that four or five times. In Antares, it's not the case. You run into someone and you're going to pace them or they're going to pace you. Or you'll all die. Or you'll all die, which is also not that uncommon. Yeah, we've seen that happen a couple of times where two units have gone into each other and at the end of it, it's like the shattered remnants of both units just declare, nah, we, we out. It's like, it's not worth sticking around anymore as the shattered survivors flee the table. Yeah, the, the fully decisive you know, total victory, no quarter assault phase really defines Antares on the basis that your units will stack up some pins and then you'll assault them. And what, you know, that's a great way to clear out an enemy unit. 
There's also some sneaky stuff you can do with that, not getting too far ahead of the game. But in Antares, you don't need line of sight to assault something. So you can sprint around the blind corner, you can dogpile dudes that are hiding behind something, or if you have troops that are, troops that are suspended or have jetpacks or can float or fly about, you can fly over stuff and then land on someone and smack them in the teeth before they even you're on top of them. And in particular, my favourite part of the assault phase is that this heavy reliance on morale tests at the end coming back into pins and order checks you can have a unit that is inferior in every way to another unit say for instance gar outcasts assaulting say uh, gar battlesuits yeah battlesuits are superior in every single way they'll kill a great many of the outcasts but these outcasts can charge in one turn and wipe out a full squad of suits in the right conditions, and that's my particular favourite. Yeah, your death when it comes to the assault phase. I mean, killing guys is always good, but you don't have to kill guys. It's all about building up those pins, because the one who wins the assault is the one with the most pins, not the most deaths. So if you charge a unit that's already knackered, oh. Le leads the reverse of that, yeah, leads yeah. pins. The, the ones with the most pins takes the test to see if they flee. My mistake. And if you both have the same number of pins, you're both considered losers, <laughs> and you both have to test, and you might both flee. Isn't that the plot of a Simpsons episode? <laughs> you guys know this. The draw is everyone's size. <sighs> so yeah, that's that's really it's a really brutal, really decisive action that you can take. It's like once you commit to an assault, generally someone is going to die. You want to pin your enemy down. They want to have more pins than you. Space nets. Speaking of someone going down, it's the phase whilst my favourite is also my bane with Butter Bull having fled every single time he's been assaulted without taking so much as a wound in combat. Don't put him in an assault suit, Nick. He's a, he's a pretty big chicken, he just he doesn't want to get he's close. Still, he's a big golden chicken. Put him in an assault suit. Assault suits are no joke. But those things are terrifying. But as decisive as, as assaults are, there are some things that your units can do to potentially escape because Antares also features a reaction system. Yeah, this is this is probably my favourite bit of Antares. It's the thing that ties it all together. So the order system, uh, you know, you can have situations where someone just gets all their orders, but the reaction system allows both players to be engaged all the time. Now, when you're starting out, probably the reaction that's going to come up most is when you're getting assaulted and you can run away. So one of the great things, if you can pass the test of course, and if you don't take a pin, you're probably going to die from the assault as a result. But one of the great things about uh, the assault uh, and the reaction phase is it makes assaults reasonably rare. But you really have to try and charge something that's already super pinned out or has already taken an action, it's already down, etc. Otherwise maybe it gets away. So it does make assaults rare, but they are decisive. Hmm. I mean, as Justin said, it's like you have to make a test in order to take a reaction. Units in Antares have a stat, which um, I believe is initiative. Initiative. Which, yeah, which is their ability to jump into action. So, or jump out of action. Or into action, out of action. I don't know, it's like, I like standing and shooting, but that's because yeah. I'm crazy. So, <laughs> even if you do declare that you are going to react, it's not free. You can only do that if, you, if it's a unit that hasn't activated yet, you have to pull their dice out of the bag and they have to pass um, their initiative test even if they don't have any pins on them. And if they fail, they get a pin from their trouble. And if they're getting assaulted, that puts them in a really bad spot. The thing about reactions is they really sneak up on you. And sometimes things like running away aren't always the best option. For instance, in Antares, one of the best things you can do 
when you're getting the evolving crap shot out of you is go down. People think that an Antares is going down and like getting in your guts is a bad thing. If you have someone firing, say, net ammo out of a launcher at you doing the Scooby-Doo, or you have a bunch of enemies with plasma carbines laying down just endless bullets on top of you, if you go, okay, my reaction is instead of running away, instead of trying to shoot back, I'm inferior, I'm going to go down, I'm going to get on my guts, that means they have to reroll every single successful shot they put on you. So like we said before, if you're axed at, your ability to shoot on a 5, and you're hitting 50% of the time, you roll your dice, you roll 10 dice, you hit 5 times from probability, you then have to roll that successful 5 again, so you've mitigated 5, 6, 7 shots off your enemy, and being able to just sort of get down and take cover, people think it's a dirty option, it's an excellent way to get your head out of trouble. And there is nothing more infuriating <laughs> than firing on an enemy unit, hoping to kill them, seeing them go down, and watching his every shot that would have hit missed. It's just wonderful. It's also worth noting that down is the one reaction that you don't have to do a test to do. You can always just choose to eat dirt and cower like the cowards you are rather than try and make a test. So sometimes it is the better option. I mean, the last game Dustin and I played, it's like I had an ex-launcher team that spent approximately three orders in a row just eating dirt and going down to try and survive strafing run after strafing run from his interceptors. It survived though, I saw it. It, it did, and it had an impact on the game. Yeah, yeah, and that really sold me on like going down as a thing that I would sometimes want to do. The one that I think is really subtle, that I think is potentially really impactful is the ambush order. Uh, it's not a reaction as such. What it'll reaction. Yeah, it's an action you declare that'll kind of banks a reaction. And what it allows you to do if you can plan it right is you can position it so that you know an enemy unit really wants to come out and shoot at something. But you can kind of stop them halfway out in the open, catch them with their pants down and gun them down. And it's hard to line up, but when it comes off, it adds an incredible amount of depth, tactical depth to the game you get or gets. Can confirm this happened to me today by Justin. He ambushed one of my guys as soon as he put his nose out. Ambushed. Hold on. In particular, there are several units wherein the ambush order is a truly, like the Asaurian face sniper, for instance. That weapon in ambush reacting to you moving in front of it really makes you want to think very carefully and very long and very hard about what you put in front of that gun. I will say the face sniper is interesting. Um, the other reactions that come up a lot, uh, if someone gives a fire order of running away and just breaking line of sight, and it's really easy to do, especially if your unit's quite cranked, you just run behind another unit and save yourself from trouble. Or when you can shoot back, a unit like the phase sniper is perfect. You, you return fire, yeah, it chops up your unit, but simultaneous fire, you probably trade, and it's not a bad outcome. And on top of that, simultaneous fire can be really, really punishing. It's about knowing when to pick those moves, when to play, and when to fall, and when to hide, and when to cower, and that tactical depth the other guys have been talking about is a really huge part of Antares. On the surface, just like, I have all these orders, and you might think to use those orders maybe, you know, once a game or twice a game, or you might just be going, okay, I'm just going to move and shoot, move and shoot, move and shoot. It's when you start having cheeky guys going, okay, I'm going to run away from you, or I'm going to counter shoot you, or I'm going to go down. That's really when Antares has to come into itself. Yeah. We're going to hear some messages from our lovely, lovely supporters and we're going to broadcast some propaganda over the nanosphere and we will join you in just a second with Editing Magic.
sci-fi war games miniatures. Find out more at warlordgames.com. And welcome back to a very special episode of the Noise Sector. So, sorry, to finish off our first um, look at the rules, we're going to do the anatomy of a unit. Just reminding you, I'm Asher, Justin, Dan, and me. And we are going to look at a C3 strike squad. These guys are basically your standard get things done, get the business sorted, shoot stuff, pin stuff, get an objective, do the job. They're the closest. They're the closest thing to a vanilla infantry choice in the game. Despite the fact they are actually very, very good for a vanilla infantry and choice. Humanity's finest. They really are. Best men in the world. Well, being the finest of degenerate filth is really nothing to be proud of, I must say. So if we look at the stat line, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six statistics on each single unit. You've got your ag, your act, your strength, your res, your initiative, and your command. So, Ag is agility. So this is the stat that's tested for most movement related things. So if the unit's trying to go through difficult terrain, if they can pass an agility test, i.e. their agility is 5, so if they roll a 5 or less, they can move at full pace through difficult terrain, otherwise they're slowed to half movement for that. Roughly representative, I think, of one's physical endurance and ability to manoeuvre. The next stat on the line is the axe stat. That's your ability to shoot. So that's your bam bam power power. And again, the C3 strike squad, they have an act of five. Now in both cases with agility and with accuracy, the game is kind of geared up in a way that you fail an awful lot. Um, with accuracy, because most weapons will have penalties at various range, we'll talk about that I'm sure in a minute. What it means is, especially in those early turns of the game, you're pretty far away, you miss an awful lot of your shooting. And you don't tend to do a lot of damage when you're really far away. And with the agility stat, you tend to spend a lot of time crawling through terrain. Or if you're a guard player or a Boromite player, you're probably steering clear of that terrain as much as possible. So the next stat along is STR, or Strength. So this stat is principally used in close combat when it comes to punching other people in the face. So again, like Ag and Ak, you need to roll equal to or less than your stat. So our C3 uh, Strike Squaddies, a strength 5, perfectly normal, average human strength, so they need to roll a 5 or less to punch people in the face. Now, there are some modifiers for that, depending on whether they've charged or not. There are some bonuses you can get to your strength, the main one, of course, being if you charge. If you charge, you're the one setting up the combat, you get plus 1 to your strength. So again, they would go from 5 to 6, so if they're going to jump in and tussle someone up, they're now rolling 6s or less. And that's not affected by pins, as we discussed before, so strength is an interesting stat, uh, and you'll notice a lot of leaders tend to carry a melee weapon too. In particular, with relation to pins and um, assaulting, whether or not you're under stress doesn't really affect just how hard you're going to hit someone when you're running straight up with a bat. The next stat we have on the line is res, IES, and that's your sort of armor value. The Concord Strikes will actually have two values in this box because they're wearing hyperlight armor, fancy super mega ultra space armor. Their normal res, if they weren't wearing armor, would be a 5. Because they're in the res crazy suit that gives them all the protection, in brackets they have a secondary stat there, which is 7. So when they're at their best in perfect conditions, they are saving on a 7, not on a 5. So in this case, the 5 is basically just given as your baseline human standard for reference, because they'll never actually be testing on that. The Hyperlight Armor has special rules, but 90% of the time they'll be testing on 7. So they basically need to roll a 7 or less in order to make their armor save. So pretty good odds. I will say this is one of those things that's very confusing for new players. 
in particular with respect to the C3 and the Osorian troops, because in almost every other case, someone has, you know, that number of brackets is their base stat, that's what they've got, they've got reflex arm, that's what it is, but because C3, they have basically, if they're within 10, it's a value, if they're uh, outside of 10, it's a value, if it's a blast, it's a value, and, and that is a little bit tricky to keep track of, so if you're new, do give that section a bit of a read and keep it in mind. And the other particularly interesting thing with the res stat is, say, for instance, guard troops or vehicles, if something has a res stat of above 10, say 12 in the case of guard troops, if something does not have the ability to go over that, when it's um, the ability, strike, 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 value, strike value and dice roll just can't equal that yeah. res value, the unit doesn't equal it, representing yeah. that armour being that impervious of the people within it, are not worried by these kinds of fires. Having said that though, if your res is 12, if you're in a crazy powered battle suit and you still roll a zero on your res check, you are still going to buy the laser. Yes, the yes ground. you will. Yeah, so really high res values are interesting that way. They can be modified downwards by a weapon strike value, which we'll talk about in a minute. But for now, the next step along on our unit profile is initiative. So initiative is what you have to roll to do a reaction, as Justin mentioned earlier. In this case, these guys are initiative 7. So basically, 70% chance to be able to react, but that's before you take pins and things like that into account. Yeah, the, the, the basic strike squad is a very reliable reacting unit, but 70% is still not amazing when it really counts. Talking about reliability, the next stat, and the final stat on the line is CO or command, and that's your ability to get orders out and done, sorted, under pressure. And their command is eight, and eight's pretty good, that's a bit above average. Most sort of human stuff clocks in at about seven or eight. There's some stuff in some of the armies that goes below seven or eight, but generally that's sort of the range you want to look at. The thing is though, it's actually deceptively, it's deceptively high, because pretty much every time you're actually testing on your command is when you have pins on you. So even though you might think, oh yeah, Command 8, that's great, it's like only 20% chance of failure, generally if you're actually testing on it, like you've got a pin or two on you, or you're testing, you're making a break test because you've got a bunch of pins on you, so it actually starts to spiral downwards very quickly, and like, you know, it's not, it's not uh, rare that you'll be making Command tests on like fives, and you know, having yeah. to roll the hard five. Yeah, and that's a bit of a killer. I will say this is one of the interesting things about Antares and designing this, is making sure that you know you, you maximize the reliability of your units, and that might include taking some units with command or hero to improve those stats. So in those cases, command allows a unit to share its command value with other units, and hero allows them to share their initiative value, again, increasing the reliability, because failing those order tests is really punishing. Yeah, so you can kind of create bubbles where if you keep your commander or hero in the centre of your army, it greatly increases the reliability of your troops around you. However, the downside is those units tend to be rather expensive in terms of like the price you have to pay for the number of models that you get. Extremely so. So to just briefly touch on some of the options for the strike squad, we can of course add more troops to the unit, We've, we can give one of the troopers a plasma lance, which is a special weapon. Why would you not? Why would you not? And one option that I thought we should uh, discuss briefly is the spotter drone. Yeah. Now spotter drones are something that I like really caught my eye when we first got into Antares, because all of the units had these cute little bunny drones following around, I was just like, what do they even do? Well, Antares is a sci-fi, fast-paced sort of game. It has that lovely sort of 70s, kitschy little robot sort of flying around. 
course about helping everyone out, and they're really an integral mechanic of the game. Yeah, these things are really cool. The, the infantry, the humans, generally get the work done, but all the buddy drones and things generally provide the buffs and things to make things more reliable. Spotters give you a reroll, so even though you're only hitting half the time on default, that reroll suddenly makes you shooting a lot more reliable. So pairing the humans and the drones together is really important. And if you have a special weapon like your plasma lance in the squad, having that reroll to use on a high value shot can be like a really good investment. And the other excellent thing about those rerolls is, say for instance you're firing a unit they like to go down, you've then cancelled their rerolling so it's a lot easier to hit them no matter what they do. And we should just clarify, the spotter drone means you get one reroll. Mm -hmm. So, like we said before, with a special high value weapon like a plasma lance, if you need that to hit, like that's the weapon you need to hit to put that unit in the dirt and to kill them, being able to reroll that, and if it's hitting 50-50, like it's a really swingy mechanic, it's a really cheeky way to get more shots on your enemies. And it might not seem like that one extra reroll that you don't have to do for a successful hit when a unit's down isn't all that important, but that hit gives that unit a pin, and that pin then means it's a lot harder for that unit to get back up and get back into the fight. Absolutely. Yeah, sometimes that reroll can be the difference between pinning a unit or not pinning a unit. So we have a look at the standard C3 Strike Trooper, and now we're just going to have a bit of a browse of their weapons catalog. If you hang a right on their actual profile, tell us what they're equipped with, and normally these guys come with plasma carbines, but you can have a special plasma lance, which is like sort of a heavy weapon they can carry around to put some extra hurt on. But we're just going to talk about the plasma carbine right now. It's sort of the standard high-value space infantry weapon. Yeah, now interestingly, this is not I, it's not quite the standard weapon. There are a lot of factions out there that use mag guns that aren't quite as exciting it's as the fancy gun. It, it's a little fancy because it comes with two separate firing modes. So the first thing that you want to know about the profile is its range. So it has three range bandings. Effective range where you have no to hit penalties. Long range that is a neg one to hit penalty. And extreme range which is a neg two to hit penalty. So if, say, we're firing our plasma carbine on a single shot, its effective range is 20, so ideally you want to be firing it within 20 inches. Long range is 30, and extreme goes all the way out to 50. What's really interesting about Antares is if you have a clear line of fire, there are not all that many weapons that really can't reach across the board. And if they can't reach across the whole board, they can definitely reach across more than half of it. So you, you, once you can see a unit, if you've got a clear line of fire, you can definitely shoot at it but again, because the axe stats are low, because the penalties are high, can often be hitting only 10% or 20% of the time and then not likely to do much damage. And a particularly interesting thing about these range bands is that whilst you'll find many weapons that do have an extreme range value, there are some that don't. Sort of, and these ranges are what sort of get you to get your units into that maximum range. There's sort of a rush to get there first to stay in your maximum, uh, your most effective range and not in your enemies. Although sometimes you will take that, a bit, that uh, loss to your hit value just so your enemy can't return fire anywhere near as effective. Yeah, now the final thing that we want to look at here is the strike value of the weapon. Now the strike value is basically the armor save or the res modifier. So in this case, if we're throwing our plasma carbine on a single shot, it has a strike value of two. So if we take our strike Concord Strike Squad with their standard res of seven, if they got hit by the weapon they're carrying, the plasma carbine, in the case of a little blue on blue, that save of seven would actually be reduced to five. 
And then, you know, you're saving on 50-50 instead of a 75. And if we sort of roll that even further, if we're firing on a target that's not in crazy hyperlight armor, if their rest stat's normally a 5 or a 6, they then drop below that 50-50 armor band and those weapons become very effective. Or even in the case of something like the Gar Outcasts, who have a res of 4 to start with, then if they get shot by a plasma carbine on single shot, then they're only saving 20% of the time. And if they're getting hit by a weapon that has a strike value equal to their armor, they're no longer really getting a save, just eating it. The other way you can take this as well is because the plasma carbine is a weapon that has two weapon profiles, depending on your situation, you might want to just do a single shot or you might want to do a scatter shot, which is like a rapid fire. And there's a little sort of caveat on that, which means you get to fire the gun twice, but you're at a neg one to hit if you're outside of your effective range. So if you're at good old fashioned 30, you're outside of 20, you will be- You'll be at neg two to hit instead of net one. Yeah, because you have to rapid fire and you'll be at long range. So two modifiers banking up. There's definitely some interesting things here as well, just with the way the game works. And the first is, of course, you're measuring from the closest dude to the closest enemy guy. So sometimes, you know, the, the closest guy might be at 19 inches and the guy at the back might be at 22 inches, but you're counting based on the guy at the front for your modifiers. Uh, which I think is really, really important. And the other thing, of course, in anti-areas is uh, friendly models, even within a unit, will block each other's line of sight. So a lot of anti-areas to really outplay your opponent is, is making sure that you get your whole squad to shoot and they can only shoot back at one or two. Maximizing your firearms, but in particular with your weapons and different fire modes, they can lend a um, rather extreme amount of versatility to a particular unit. For instance, a um, Gar Battlesuit Squad with their Scarricans have three different fire modes. So no matter what situation you're in, you can tailor your fire suit, which can be an excellent tactical advantage. Being able to tailor in this game is really important. Being able to bring the right tool for the right job is hugely important. And like, just picking up what Justin was saying, not blocking your own guys, the last thing you want to do is flow in advance or put your best weapon in the back where you can't see over anything. It happens all the time, it happens all the time. I will say, uh, the plasma carbine is interesting because the mag equivalent, so the mag gun has similar kind of stats. The less fancy weapon. It's the less fancy weapon, but it's got a lower strike value. And the repeater, well it does the rapid fire, but it doesn't do the single shot. And what's really interesting is it means that there are situations where, you know, the repeater can't shoot at all, it's too far away, or well, the enemy's in hard cover. The repeater is really ineffective, whereas the carbine, because it can, it has the flexibility, it, it seldom finds itself in a situation where it's not a really great weapon. Yeah, exactly. It's like as an algorithm player, I have found myself in a few situations where, you know, my repeaters have just been a little bit outside of effective range, and I've wished that I had a single shot mode. It is worth noticing with the plasma carbine that if you fire it on a scatter shot, in addition to being less accurate at long range, its strike value is also reduced to zero. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't hit as hard, but you're getting twice as many shots. So if you have an enemy unit in the open, then the math says that firing twice as many shots, even if they're less powerful ones, is probably a good idea. If you're shooting up outcasts, then yeah, you want to massacre them with weight of fire. But if you have an Algorand unit that's, say, res 7 hiding in terrain that gives them a plus 2 res bonus, then maybe you don't want to fire a scatter shot at them because like only they're only failing their saves on a zero. Whereas if you fire single shots, that's reducing that to their standard uh, 7 out of 10. And that can also be the difference between putting a pin on an enemy unit and not. As we said before, with armor, uh, superior armor values, that strike value difference can really make the difference between putting a squad in a position where it's no longer able to fight 
while leaving that squad slightly harmed, but still perfectly capable of retaliating. Yeah, absolutely. The ability to um, put pins on guard units with the single shot from the plasma carbine is something that we've found pretty significant when playing against the guard. I mean, as an Algorand player, it's like my standard mag weapons just don't do pins to guard suits. I hope you've enjoyed our little talky talk about how the weapons work and just a brief run through the profiles. There's a lot more stuff in the book and a lot of the different units have separate profiles that are vastly different from the C3 Strike Squad. It's just a good benchmark because it really is the sort of... Gold standard. Yeah, it's, it's, the, standard. Standard. it's, it's the best you can really do out of a standard You know, I know that sounds like a bit of a counterintuitive equation, but they really are sort of for us the starting point when it comes to measuring units. And they come in um, the new starter set, Strike on Karma 9, so yeah. what, what more do you want? Yeah, they're great. We're going to do some lovely hobby magic and we'll be back with you after these short messages. And we're just going to finish up today with a hobby whip round. So all four of us lovely Antares lads are going to have a talk about what we've been working on lately. Well, me, I have just got my command crawler painted. Lovely metallic purple that you showed me. We have troopers in it, lots of yellow lights everywhere. I'm actually very pleased with how it turns out. I just have the basing to go. And then that will actually be my 750 points completely and utterly painted. If you've never seen it, it looks like a Gordian listening cockroach. It's, it's amazing. Beautiful. It's really cool. Yeah. So I've also recently finished off my 750, finally smashed out the infiltrators after resisting the to smash them on the floor for being pieces of shit. Um, <laughs> they have actually finally redeemed themselves and have won me a couple of games and have not just fucking fallen over and died at the end. So Asha, they're not bad anymore? They're no, okay. no, no, they're great. They're, they're, right. they're great. They're, they're, good. they're both fair they're and good. balanced. So, so how's those salted wounds going, Asha? Yeah, great. Um, in addition to that, I've been working on some terrain for the Defour table. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we all sat down and just carved out like some huge crystal mountains, and I've been busy putting paint on them today. It was very therapeutic. We got out with some choppers and just hewed out this big brick of hard foam. It was, it was a lot of fun. I went out with bread knives. You're not going to tell your listeners Ash's title? Well, technically it's Dan's title, but we can share it. Dan's title. He's the president of Dilbopolis. Because all of the giant crystals look Because like of a certain phallic. They're, they're phallically shown. There's only so many ways you're a giant round look, crystal. Look, they look like dildos, okay? Let's not beat around the book. They look like the kind of thing Far Top would strap to the end of the week. Good person, good person. That's what Far Top's all about. Well, I've actually gone crazy, and you'll hear all about it on the show. Look, I've painted yeah. basically 750 points of Algorand in just a couple of weeks. I've just bought on Dan's advice some orange that's gonna that, that's gonna be my my squad markings, which I'm really pumped about. And I've been playing a heap of games. Um, some of you guys uh, just had a great game with Dan. He might talk more about it. <laughs> uh, he needs a hug. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we've been, we've been working on some scenarios just to sort of do some competitive matched type play and I think that's going reasonably well at the moment. So hopefully we'll have something to share with everybody um, in a couple of days. Yeah, Justin's algorithm looks fantastic. They're this lovely sort of really rich turquoise colour with a bone contrast. And it's just, it's stunning on the tape. He's whipped it out of a week. I'm very impressed. It looks good. As the man who spends forever on a single model like this does. 
blows me away when people walk out. And especially Ashton when he just sort of trots out, well, that's 750 done in two days, what do you want next, boss? He never calls me boss, that's a lie. Yeah, well, at the moment, Justin's putting some uh, severe pressure on me in terms of speed painting at the moment. So hopefully when we get our next batch of stuff, we'll um, be able to put in another couple of days and get that all up to scratch. To be perfectly honest, I think I've spent half the time just holding my Avenger, just going... <laughs> 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 it won't keep you good a day, you're going to put some holes in my units. That is the distinct issue with any sort of flying stand model. That <laughs> temptation to just make it fly. <laughs> 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 What about you, Dan? How are your latest painted models going? They've been a huge success, right? Yeah, no, just because my models are painted immaculately and look fantastic with weathering and all sorts of crazy details, doesn't necessarily mean it's conducive to good table play. I have about 1,200 points painted because I have a Concord. You're a monster. They are painlessly overcasted. And you're a monster. I have the exact same model count as Asher. I just have more expensive troops. I also have a new Mandarin, which you may see on Facebook. Which was, which is definitely a highly successful model. It's a highly successful <laughs> model. It did kill my command crawler, and it will pay for that. It probably also killed the command crawler wrong, using the wrong rules, because I was reading it wrong, so it was bad. It doesn't uh, shoot 3D3. It doesn't shoot 3D3 blasts. Yeah, it shoots the, uh, 3D3 blasts. The lovely other half of the Freeborn Shard team has uh, kindly offered some critiques and rules corrections, and thus has made Dan even sadder. He's he already mediocre Mandarin. He's definitely the, the Oracle, and now I can think of as mediocre Mandarin. It's 200 <laughs> points of a great model, but on the table, it just didn't. Yeah, I, I don't want to give away the secrets. You guys were very kind to tell me that I knew what I was talking about, but really on the show, I just I piggyback off Tim. His greatness. He just knows everything. Yeah, he's amazing. My my army's basically painted. I finished off my drop squads when I have a drop command and drop squad, so I have a six man drop squad floating around with two lances. So that's all pretty cool. I'm working on a super secret project that I'm hoping to take to the War on the Four tournament that we're having in February of 2017 on the 25th which will be a Commander Joseph modification. I'm not giving anything away, but I'm using the Savage Core range of models. The Savage Core range of models from Warlord Games. They are some actually very beautiful models. Yeah, so if you happen to be in Australia or Melbourne and are interested in coming to, well, possibly one of the first Gates of Antares tournaments run in the country, then please come by and check us out. And if you are the same kind of individual who'd like to buy aircraft flights to come here and do that, I'll buy you a beer, because that is outstanding. Alright, Pascal's like you, but first Mick's going to buy you a beer because Pascal's flying out. If you're hearing this after the fact, hopefully the noise sector and the Freeborn Show will be bringing you many, many more tournaments in the Australian Nebula. We are hoping for the best. This has been the Noise Sector. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for listening to our episode zero. We hope it's been helpful. If you have any questions, hit us up on the Facebook, messages on SoundCloud. You can watch our videos on YouTube. We have some battle reports up there and some lovely glossy footage of our armies. And please listen to the Freeborn Shard as well. They are the heavy hitters in the Antares podcast world and we're the tiny sort of parasitic second fish in the promise. <laughs> That's right, we're the little fish clinging to the giant shark. We're the clinging to its gills. We jump down your urethra. <laughs> well, not that kind of paralysisism, Dan. Uh, from the sweltering heat of the hellscape of before, oh, this okay. has been the noise sector. It is like 40 degrees centigrade today. For you British people, you get three hot days and put them into one. <laughs> so basically, just another normal Australian summer day. I've been Asher. I've been Mick. I've been Dan. And Justin. From the Free Watcher. <laughs>
Glory to the God of Located at 52 Marunda Highway, Ringwood, Victoria.